Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. The Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast is now supported by the Urban Land Institute. To find out more about becoming a member, please follow the link in the show notes, remembering to quote the promo code ACRE to take advantage of all the benefits of our partnership. More details at the end of this podcast. So this evening, I'm sat with Mark Castle, who at the time of this recording has just announced he's stepping down as COO for Mace's £1.7 billion construction business. Having been responsible for setting up Mace Plus 16 years ago, I am very much looking forward to hearing from Mark, how his career has been led up until Mace, and then of course how it's been affected ever since. Now, Mark, normally I'd ask you to get things going where sort of chapter one began, but I want to just take a bit slightly different angle to this. And I'm going to read a quote, if you don't mind. And this comes from Mark Reynolds, CEO of Mace. And this has been tagged along with a lot of the announcements. So during his time, our construction business has grown to a £1.7 billion business, delivering some of the most iconic projects in the world. And Mark has played a key role in making that happen. Now, I, th- I think that is a brilliant send-off and legacy. I don't, I don't know how, you, how that makes you feel about, uh, about that time you spent at Mace. It was a, a lovely statement to make. And as you can imagine, after 17 years in the role, it's, it's quite a big decision to take to step out. But what I would say, Nick, about the journey, as much as the nice words that Mark had to say, it's always been about a collective team that have made that happen over the last 17 years. I am, I am sure it is, and I'm, and I'm very much looking forward to getting into that. Before we do, I am curious, looking back, what's been your proudest moment in that time? It probably goes right back to the start, because I was afforded what I thought at the time was an unrivaled opportunity in the market to create a fixed price contracting company on the back of what I thought was a fantastic brand, a business that you know, going back to 2004 was principally a consultancy for earning business that had started to dip their toe in the water into the world of contracting. But this was an opportunity to go in and create something from scratch and an opportunity to build something on the back of that brand. And those early years, particularly the first probably four or five years, as we set out building the business, were enormously exciting winning projects and I can remember in the early days where we in construction we had about 20 employees in the first year of Mace Plus and every time we won a job we'd go off to the pub to celebrate the news and uh, you know we, we grew the business steadily and then of course along the journey certain projects came in which really propelled the business forward at an exponential rate nonetheless less of course than the shard. Well before we get in, into that uh, let me go back then to my, my standard sort of first question, because I'm always curious uh, about sort of where it all began for you, Mark. So just wind the clock all the way back and, and tell us about where that, where that first sort of career chapter began for you. Well, so go back to the start. I was born and bred in a place called Hillingdon, which is over near Heathrow Airport. Way. My mother and father, who are still alive, uh, still live there. I, I was a grammar school educated pupil. But if I look back on it, Nick, I was very much um, very average in in terms of what I would call my my academic schooling years. But I I managed to walk away at the age of 16 with a handful of O-levels, as they were called then, GCEs today. And uh, I had a choice. I could either stay on and 
do A-levels or I could leave school at 16 and go and do an apprenticeship. And that's what I decided to do. I was interviewed by Taylor Woodrow, who said to me, you're never going to make it in this industry if you don't go back and do your A-levels first. And the other company interviewed me and offered me the apprenticeship with Molon, who uh, were a big business then in those days. And uh, so I left school at 16. I went to further my education on a sort of a day release evening school at Richmond College. And I went out on the building sites at a young age to gain the practical experience across all areas of the business in my apprenticeship. But fundamentally, my training was as a quantity surveyor. Um, Avish, why? Why did you leave school at 16? And, and what was it about you know, going to work at that? At what, what seems like a really young age now? Yeah, I think at the time, I mean, obviously you could leave school at 16. But when I look back, the honest answer to that is I didn't think that I was academic enough to pass my A-levels. And I actually looked at the options available. And people would say to me then that actually trying to do an apprenticeship on day release is, is a tough way of trying to work your way up through the industry. And yet I, I felt then, and I still feel today, that it's the best way of learning. Because you're getting that practical experience alongside still developing your academic skills. And uh, I think the value that apprentices bring to businesses, and that stands today as it did then, is, is, is huge. The 16-year-old sort of Mark Castle, did, it, did he have any aspirations? Did he have any, any real ambitions? Oh, God, yeah. I think from a work perspective, I'm not sure it was with me at 16, but certainly as I got into my early 20s, I was hugely ambitious. And uh, I had an aspiration even at that age to want to run the business to become a managing director of a construction business one day. That was my ambition then. And that probably stood with me for quite some time during my career. Um, just listening to this, this sounds like two, two different characters. The, the chap who left school, who, you know, who had reservations about him, whether he was going to cut it at A-level, through to then the, the person who, who's then got the ambitions to be, to be the MD. How do, you, how do you think you sort of balance those two out? Well, I think, I think from the age of 16 to 20, when I was an apprentice, looking back, although I enjoyed the apprenticeship, I felt those years that my pace of learning was a little lethargic, and, and that was on the part of the company, not mine. I think in those early years, what I learned to do was make tea and coffee well, photocopy, and I became an expert in folding drawings. But looking back, I could have learned quicker. And, um, you know, when I think back to my time on site, when you're a youngster at that age coming straight out of school, you are shy, you're inexperienced, you don't want to ask silly questions because you don't want to be seen to be knowing nothing. And yet I do regret I could have learned a lot quicker in those years if I'd had the courage on site to go and talk to the tradesmen to ask what they were doing and why they were doing it. So those that first four years was quite, in my view, quite lethargic. But where I really stepped into a different gear was when I came out of the apprenticeship and I moved to work with a design and build company. Uh, in those days, I was at the age of 20 and I was lucky because I joined a business where I was the only really young individual in the business at the time. And the managing director of that company took a keen interest in my development. And he was one of the biggest influencers of my career. Why? You mentioned about one of his biggest influences and given sort of what we know of your, your career now, that's saying an awful lot. How did he influence the career? 
Well, when I when I joined this business, design and build, at the age of twenty, I was a QS, a commercial individual, and um, and what the guy name will mean nothing now. He's still alive, David Jordan. He was the MD, and he saw something in me where he took an interest, and by that he, he took time out to sponsor my progress and you know things like sending me on residential courses away for a week at ashridge to learn more about running a business he introduced me to the importance of sales and marketing within a business and in fact at a point in time he persuaded me to move out of my comfort zone of commercial and into sales which i knew nothing about but he certain certain things i learned from him across that time where he said to me in the early days, if you don't have sales, if you don't get business through the door, then you haven't got a business. So I learned the sharp end of things from David. I also, I was very lucky. I was a good golfer when I was a teenager. And David was just taking up the game when he was in his 40s. And he used to drag me around Friday afternoons to play golf with the clients. So that's how I got to meet a lot of the uh, big decision makers in my early years, by playing golf with them. I should say, one of my sources told you that he, uh, your game has deteriorated, though. He, don't, he told me a very funny story about he literally took your shirt at one, at one game. Oh, yeah. Uh, my, my, <laughs> game, my game has certainly deteriorated, probably because I'm not playing enough. But um, the, the, I can think about who that person might be that, uh, that uh, took my shirt. But I do remember it was the same individual. He held a, what was about a 40-foot putt on the last hole. And, uh, <laughs> and he, this, he, this sounds like fishing, fishing tales. He, t- he told me it was a 72er. <laughs> it may have been, but he was an extremely poor golfer who got lucky. <laughs> well, listen, back to, back to the, uh, the Mark Castle in, in his in his twenties. Mm. You, you mentioned that you know, this this sounds like an extremely sort of steep learning curve, but it sounds like it's working, doesn't it? Because it's given you an awful lot of confidence, and you know, this sounds like then the platform for which the, your your career really seems to start to start to rocket. It, it did make a massive difference. I mean, the fact that a senior person in the industry was taking an interest in me and my career, which is why I'm a keen advocate of our young apprentices and graduates having proper mentoring and sponsoring, because there's enormous talent at that age, which you've got to capture. And, you know, like anything as a leader, you get to where you get to. There are people out there, Nick, that are probably are far better than me. But actually, at the end of the day, there's a little bit of luck in this journey. You've got to be in the right place at the right time. And you've got to have people that do take an interest in your career and give you the opportunity to do things. And David taught me the basics of how to run a business. And I remember at the time, I was also an avid reader of the uh, Sir John Harvey Jones troubleshooter books in those days. For those of the listeners that probably might not remember, but Sir John was chief executive of ICI. And I, I took time out, in addition to what I was doing with the day job, I read a lot of books about subjects that I wanted to know more about, i.e. how to read a balance sheet. I used to hear accounting terminologies, which I didn't understand in my early 20s, but I made a point of going out and finding out more so that I could teach myself about the fundamentals of running a business or how to read a set of accounts. And David encouraged me to do that. So off topic slightly now, if anyone's in their 20s now and feels that they need need that, that help they need that that sort of guiding hand what would, what advice would you give them how 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 should they should they find themselves that experience well i think the first thing is 
any any young person in their early 20s would be wise to try to get some form of sponsorship or mentoring from either within the business or outside because you never stop learning you know i've had a mentor externally from my business for the last six or seven years and they are invaluable but when you're a young person you do to have that facility to go and talk to somebody in a senior position that can either open the doors can listen can point you in the right direction or give you guidance as to what the important things are if i you know i i was lucky to have that and there's no doubt in my mind that if if i'd been like a lot of my my contemporaries at that age i would never have had the opportunities i had it was that journey between the age of sort of 20 and 30 that set out the stall for me to allow to move to the next level well, let's get let's get back and then, then back to the, that original sort of chapter in sort of these twenties and thirties. Where does this where does this lead to? You're obviously sort of establishing yourself now as you know as a future leader within this DMB sort of specialist. What happens after this? Well, David and I, I worked with him for about ten years. And David retired, and I I took over from him at a very young age as an MD. It was a relatively smaller business, to so put it in context. In today's money, probably an eighty to a hundred million pound turnover business. But this is now what the early uh, early nineties. Your you know, readers will recall we were in the depth of recession. Life was tough. I ended up moving on to a company called Waits, which today is a great family business. Was then and still is today. And I was given the opportunity to run their design and build business in the mid nineties, and I became managing director of their London business when I was 33 years of age, which was a young age to, to do the job. And uh, and again, looking back, I was lucky because I was working for probably the second other influencer in my career, a guy called Rod Benyon, who was the chief operating officer at Waits and, um, and a 40 year lifer at the business. You mentioned there about your your age at Waits. Mm. Um, and I'm sure everyone's, everyone's sort of thinking about how impressive that is, but did that bring any unique challenges? Oh, plenty. I mean, it's easy enough to look back now because you can be more honest with yourself. But of course, when you're 33 years of age and you're given an opportunity like that, you, at the time you think you're ready for it. But there's no way at that age you can have developed the levels of experience and knowledge that you need to run a business of that size. So I, I learned the hard way, really. I, I made mistakes along the way. I think... In hindsight, I did most of my growing in terms of how to run a business in, in, that, in that age group of sort of 33 to, to 40. And I learned a lot from Rod about leadership, about how to manage people, how to hold yourself in difficult conversations or negotiations. I remember Rod having a very calm and thoughtful style, and yet he had this inner still within him. And there's no doubt that I would say that working with him and watching how he did things influenced my own style. You know, I remember when we had an employee survey done, I'd only been in the job as MD for about a a year, and uh, we had an internal employee survey. And I was running one of the most successful business units in terms of profit. But the survey came back showing that there was quite a lot of dissatisfaction with the employees. And that was all really come back to my 
my management style at the time. And Rod called me in one day to have a chat about this survey, and he and he said something to me then, which still stands today. And he said, Mark, he said, you cannot drag people kicking and screaming. They have actually got to want to follow you. And that's what leadership is all about, is followership. And I adapted my style pretty quickly to learn from what were then the mistakes that I made in the early stages of senior management. How do you make that? How do you make that change very quickly? I think you just you have to listen more to the feedback that you're getting from the people that you're working with. You have to be prepared to accept constructive criticism in the right way. And you just have to take a hard look at yourself and say, actually, some of this is probably not right or probably not true, and you have to adapt. And you've got to bear in mind, Nick, that when I was 16, I was brought up on a management style within our industry, which was very much a command control style of management. And at the time, mid-late 90s, Businesses were going through significant cultural changes, particularly around management and leadership. And I had to adapt because if I didn't adapt, I probably in hindsight wouldn't have been in that role for very long. Okay, interesting. Back on back on then with with weights and that sort of that leadership sort of style. Mm. What else do you think you were learning at this point? Because you've achieved so so much in just a short period of time, but then of course you've mentioned then with hindsight, there's lots you, you still have to learn. What else? Do, what else have you needed to do, to brush up on? I think I think you round off a lot of things. I mean, you certainly learn a lot during that period. I mean, I, I remember thinking that when, when I was at Waits, I had a leadership team that I inherited, and uh, they were good people. But in hindsight, I'd wish I'd made some changes at that time to strengthen the business. And one thing I learned, and this is probably when I came into Mace, as a leader, you are only as good as the people you've got around you. And I know that is an old adage, but the one thing I learned from those early years is that employ the very best people that you can because you'll learn from each other. And what it did for me is it made me a better leader. I made sure I employed the very best construction and commercial directors that I could find in the market, convinced that if I had the best, I'd learn from them. And that's what we did. Did your age ever go against you at that, at that point then when you're recruiting the, you know, the best of the best? No, because I think in, in, in the early 30s, it probably did. It wasn't until I got to, I would say, late 30s that you get to a point where you have a, a level of perhaps gravitas and experience and, and some grey hair coming where people respect you and believe that you've probably been through enough of the business challenges to know what you're talking about and what you're doing. So it was as I got to that late 30s, early 40s, where I would say I got more comfortable in my own skin. So everything sounds very rosy. You've had very early success. You're obviously adapting and changing at, at weights. But you're not at weights now, are you? So what was it about that next opportunity that was, that was so tempting? Looking back on it, I was 37 years of age and I was approached out the blue to have an opportunity to go and run a, an American company called Structure Tone. And uh, it was effectively, I was headhunted for the role. And at that age, you know, I, I had young children growing up. Uh, I was still very ambitious. And I think I had my head turned, Nick, looking back on it. It all sounded a bit glamorous, the opportunity to run an American business. I went out to New York to meet the owners. 
I had an opportunity to do something different, to sit on effectively their executive committee in New York, work with the Americans. And I probably had in my head this vision that I'm going to be flying around the world, aeroplanes and, and hotels. And actually, it's quite a tough, it's quite a tough gig, particularly when you've got young children growing up. But there was no doubt. I just thought, well, here's an opportunity. Shall I take it or should I play safe and stay stay where I was? And I decided to take take a punt and um, and have a go at the role. And um, I have no regrets over that at all. I enjoyed very much working with the Americans. I think they're a great bunch of people. Quite interesting sitting on a board of directors where you've got a mix of Texans, Floridians, New Yorkers, and the and, and the Brits from across the pond. As you can imagine, I didn't get much of a word in edgeways with the with the guys from the states. But <laughs> you know what? what? You take little things, little things you learn from these businesses. And the one thing I loved about America and and the structured home business, they are such a positive nation. It's all about serving the customer, and the customer comes first. Uh, and they are very much of a mantra that you do a great job, and the money will flow. And that's one of the things I learned working with the Americans. You mentioned sort of no regrets, and I'm not sure if that was a um, a hint towards. Mm, you're there yeah. about sort of two years, aren't you, at Structure Home? And then something else happens. There's there's, an, there's another moment for change. Without telling, us, I'm not necessarily asking sort of what what that was, but I am curious as to you know the build up behind that as to why that was. Why 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 was that a moment for change? I think two things. I think that at the time I had a young family and the travelling to and from the states was was quite a, a you know a hard push on the family and my wife and i happened to be i was on holiday in cyprus i still remember it today with my family middle middle of 2004 i've been in structure tone about two and a half years and i'd had a call to say that i was coming up to my 40th birthday so i'm not sure if it was anything to do with that but i doubt it but i had a call saying when i got back to the uk would i be interested in meeting mace and as I said to you earlier, Nick, Mace at the time was a business that had come a long way since its early creation days. But this opportunity that was opening up to create and run a fixed price business, I just, it was a no brainer for me. It was almost like, it was like the two worlds had come together at the right time. You know, I, I was traveling a lot. Here was an opportunity to do something different, an unrivaled opportunity. I couldn't think of any other job in the industry at that time where you had an opportunity to create a contracting company from scratch with a brand like Mace behind it. And of course, Mace at this point was becoming more and more a global entity. And it's quite interesting because the day I started the job was the same day as Stephen Pycroft became the uh, CEO, having led the MBO at that time. But I was having a chance to create something from a blank canvas. And that actually, that, looking back on it, that gave me a whole new lease of energy. It's it's clear that you've you know you seem convinced about the future for or at least the opportunity here, but how 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 do you go about sort of achieving that vision? It probably I mean if I go back to when Mace made the approach, they were head office at the time at Camden, and uh, I got back met met with the uh, some of the Mace people, um, some of the owners, and then I remember the final meeting at Camden with four or five of the owners, which was at the time, as I say, led by Steve Pycroft, um, the CEO. 
And I remember Steve, Steve, the meeting was really a conversation between me and Steve, actually, with with the other guys jumping in occasionally. But one of the biggest things that the challenges I think that I knew was going to be there was how do you create a fixed price contracting company that sits alongside what was a very successful consulting fee earning business without diluting the messaging and the brand of the business. And that, that was going to always be a challenge, you know, because you, you find a lot of companies in our industry come from the world of contracting and then want to actually get themselves up the ladder closer to the clients in terms of relationships and to try and be something different. And yet Mace was in a very different place because they were already sitting alongside the client as a trusted advisor. And yet here I was coming along to lead and take forward a contracting company that took them into a whole different arena, an arena that was going to take them into a very different risk profile as well. So I was under no illusions at that stage as to what the challenge would be. But Mace gave me, as I say, a clean sheet of paper on it. They they invested significant money in those first two years but i'm pleased to say you know within year three we had paid back that investment in its entirety and we were into profit well i mean it's, it's been widely reported about sort of the, you know, the growth of that and the, the time at which you, you joined sort of mace uh, I, I assume this is mace construction at a turnover 100 million pounds and i said at the start this is 1.7 billion mm. so yeah it sounds like it was a um, uh, it was a good investment yeah i mean when I look back, I mean, I when I came into the business, as I say, I was running fixed price. One of my co-directors at the time, Gareth Lewis, was running our construction management business. And, you know, we spent three years, uh, first three years running the business separately. And then we bought them together. And I think it was when we bought the businesses together and Gareth and I have worked side by side, both as friends and, and co-owners of the business during this period. But that's when the business really started to accelerate. And, you know, you look back and you think about key moments in the business that propelled the growth. There's no doubt the Shard had a massive impact on the business, but as did our role on the 2020-12 Olympics. And then other schemes along the way that certainly some that I've personally been involved in, have, they've all been steps on the journey of made the company what it is today. But the most pleasing thing around the people issues, Nick, is that the people that were on that journey 17 years ago, most of them are still with us today. And it's been great to see how they've individually grown to take more senior roles in the business. You're very quick to sort of to, you know, to mention the team and the other people who've, who've been involved around it. I spoke to some of the teams before before you and I sort of came into the recording. And I asked one of them what they what they thought was your greatest strength. And I thought this was interesting. So they said, um, Mark's greatest strength is knitting people together, blending their strengths. And this occasionally means he ends up playing the referee between what can be some quite big characters and when and when there is a bit of friction between them. But it's necessary to keep us all all on track. Does that ring true? Yeah, it does. I mean, the um, I think it goes back to a point I made earlier. You know, when, when you're building a team, whether it be a board of directors or a project team, you need a mix of skills. And if, if, if you're, if, as I was, I set out to employ the very best that we could get in the market. And when you go and get those big characters, you know that those characters have got to where they've got to at the peak of their, their profession by, because they are good and because you know they're going to be strong people with strong opinions. There were times when, you know, 
I could see individuals within the board or the team butting heads. But that's not a bad thing because sometimes you need a bit of tension in in teams to drive an accelerated level of performance. And yes, there were times I used to get in the middle of refereeing, and I can think of a couple of my colleagues where I did that. But there were also times, Nick, I just left them to it and let them sort it out themselves. But you know, as a when you're running a business, for me, this is about getting the best out of every individual that you can, and playing people off sometimes where you need to to drive that performance. Just remind you then of what you, something you said back in those early weights days about sort of dragging people, kicking and screaming. Mm. The language now is very different, isn't it? About sort of allowing people then to you know, to find their own way. How how did you make that sort of change for you in terms of that leadership, and how did that come about? I think uh, probably just getting a bit wiser, a bit older, and actually seeing seeing what works and what doesn't. You know, I think the during my forties was probably the age where I would say I rounded off any any rough edges I had as a leader. And I think I said earlier, I became a bit more comfortable in myself. And I, and, I, and I think probably I became a bit more reflective and my style probably recognises that. So in, in my earlier years where I might say to somebody, do this, do that, my style became more of a coaching, mentoring and advising type approach. And that didn't mean that I stood back and let the team just get on with it because there were times when you do have to roll your sleeves up as a leader. You do have to get involved, and particularly in times of crisis. It's appropriate that that you show those leadership traits. But equally, I think, you know, in those times of crisis, a leader needs to have a level of calmness in, in their approach to make sure that the team are taken with them on the, on the direction of travel. So I think that, and this is the way I, when I talk about leadership styles, I think in the early years of my leadership, Nick, I probably was a leader that led from the front with the team behind me. And, and I would say, here, oh, guys, follow me over the hill. But as I've got older, my, my style is now more sitting behind my team as a safety net with a guiding hand and allowing them to take the lead, make the decisions. Because ultimately, if you're going to develop the leaders of tomorrow, you've got to expose people a place that gives them the freedom and the the independence to make decisions, but obviously within a framework of what's acceptable and what's not. So, Mark, I just wanted to bring something in again that I, that I that I heard about you, and I must say this this is incredibly consistent. Every, everybody I, I spoke to said two very very similar things. One, they always sort of commented in either sort of uh, your intelligence or in particular sort of the how your sort of brain seems to work at a very high RPM. But the other thing that everybody always said was how sort of calm or considered or how measured Mark is. Does that sort of reflect sort of how your internal process is? Or are you sort of this sort of swan along the surface and sort of feet going madly underneath? Yeah. I would say, it's interesting you say about the brain and the RPM. I mean, the way I'm wired is we've all got different strengths. And I'm, I'm, very, I'm a commercial animal. I'm a numbers man, more naturally than an operational deliverer. But I also have a very strong sort of bent towards the customer. And those early, those early years, the messaging around sales and marketing and the importance of it. In terms of my calmness, I think I said to you that I used to watch 
uh, and learn Rod Benyon at Waits how he worked and operated. And there's no doubt that I had effect on, on how I do things. I always think there's a leader that a leader should have a, an external level of calmness to them because if a leader starts losing it or, or reacting in the wrong way, then I think in part uh, that allows others to think that's acceptable. And secondly, when it gets tough and you're, you're in a crisis, for whatever that crisis might be, you need leaders that calmly navigate the team through it. So I wouldn't. I don't think I'm that duck that the feet are paddling like mad, but I do. I do. Uh, I absolutely do get people that um, that think that I have this level of external calmness. And in fact, one or two that I've worked with would say to you, "He's heartless because he's so calm, and he's he's unresponsive or unreactive in certain situations." Um, somebody said that you know when I do eventually depart this earth, they'll probably cut me open and they won't find anything inside in terms of the heart. So and I, <laughs> there's one or two people that have probably said that that are quite close to me over the years. But yeah, so I do recognise the uh, what people would say about me from that perspective. Okay, mm. and then back to, back to these sort of these early Mace days. I, th- I thought it was really interesting something you said about sort of celebrating every win. You know, with sort of the the twenty or so sort of employees you had in those very early days of getting down to the pub. But that can't have been possible for long, had it? Based on sort of how how fast that growth was. Now, what was the impact of that and how, how had things changed? I think when we were growing, contracting year three, we were up to about 120 people. And at that sort of level, I don't know what everyone else is like, but I can just about remember everybody's name when you've got about 100 odd people. As the business grew and where it is today, you know, we're talking 15, 1600 people in construction. It's impossible to know everybody's name. I, I tend to always remember the faces, but not always the name. And what I used to enjoy in those early days is you used to go out onto a project and you knew everybody. Now I can turn up on a project and I know very few people. And the thing you'll find, of course, is they always know you. But, you know, I'll turn up now and I'll obviously, I'll take the project director to one side and make sure I know who all the team members are before I walk around. Um, so it doesn't look like I'm I, I'm ignorant or or don't know who they are or what they do. So there is a, a challenge, I think, when you've grown a business at the pace that we have done, not just construction, but Mace Group, as leaders as well, it's how do you balance that need to be keeping in touch with the business day to day, understanding what's going on, having your ear to the ground. And yet at the same time, you realise you at a level of remoteness that almost becomes a natural consequence of growing to the size of business you are. I mean, you know, Mace now, we're five and a half thousand people in 50 odd countries around the world. That's very different to where we were 17 years ago. Uh, And I think you have to acknowledge that, you know, in terms of what I used to get out of it, what I enjoy is there are certain aspects of running a smaller business where you can get that enjoyment of that personal contact. But even today, one of the things that makes us different as an owner-led business is that clients have access to the owners of the company any day of the week, any time of the day, and they know that we'll get involved. And that's a tremendous plus for any business. And one of the things that we still try to deliver regardless of the size of the company. So given we're talking now about about sort of your personal career, 17 years is a long period for growing 
there must have been points of which death that felt like that acceleration might have slowed or points of which whereby you felt that you might have been plateauing. We haven't really touched on much much of that so far. So I, I wanted to, to ask you that. What what obstacles do you think you faced that, that slowed that growth, personal growth? In, ter- in terms of the growth, it's quite interesting because in my 17 years, you know, at Mace, we've had two CEOs, that's all. We had Stephen Pycroft, who then handed over the reins to Mark Reynolds. And both Stephen and Mark have both been very focused on the growing the business in the right way, but they've both been enormously ambitious. And I remember a time when Stephen talked about growing the business to a, a billion turnover. Then Mark grew it to do. And in the press, I think this week, I know Mark has talked about growing it to three billion in the next five years. So when it comes to the challenges around growth, where if you've got a CEO who is driving that level of performance and wanting to see these levels of growth, we've been a business that we've we've never sort of taken no for an answer. We don't believe in in setting the stall out and lowering the bar just to make it easy to jump. We do set ourselves some aggressive targets. And of course, when you look at the growth of the MACE group, a lot of that growth has to come from contracting because of the nature of a turnover or revenue-related business, regardless, or or should I say, instead of the consultancy business, which is fee earning, it's very difficult to go and add 100 million a year on fees on. It's a lot easier to go and add 500 million of construction turnover. So the challenges are how do you achieve that growth in, in what's been a very tough market, particularly during the pandemic, but also what you want to make sure as you're growing is that you're not diluting your quality of your service or your product or that you end up taking on silly risks where you overstretch the business and then you find that some years down the line, you know, you lose a load of money. You know, what we're not going to ever do is bet the entire organization on one or two projects i think you've been very used to sort of presenting on on mace i think you dodged my question a little bit there you asked it with a with a mace hat on rather than rather than a mark castle hat what about what about you personally during you know during that time what have where have you seen the the hurdles come from that that have stopped you in your tracks and thought right i need i need to find a way around this in order to get my growth back on track personal growth going back to I guess the ambition originally about what I what I wanted to achieve in the industry, and I'd always set myself some targets about well I want to get to this level by a certain age and then move up to the next level, and by and large Nick I was lucky or fortunate or whatever you want to call it that I I got to what I wanted to do and I certainly have no regrets of the roles that I've taken on, or the businesses that I've worked for. You know, there was a point in time in my career that I probably would have liked to have been doing Steve Pycroft or Mark Reynolds' role as the group CEO. But I think you get to a point, as I say, and that point may well be probably around the age of 50 for me, looking back, so I'm 56 now, where you get to a position where you are comfortable doing what you're doing. It's not, it's not that I was coasting or anything like that, but I just got comfortable with it. And I, for me, when I got past 50, rather than thinking, right, I want to get to the next level, whatever that next level is, my, my thought process has probably turned more to what's the legacy that I'm leaving? What else is it that I want to do for the rest of my life? Because 
I've seen too many people when I was growing up, your managing directors would work till they were 65, they'd retire and they'd take their uh, gold-plated company pensions. You know, life has moved on, life's changed and and it's going to change even more in the next 10 years than it has in the last 30. Uh, and I just think that uh, I've been lucky enough to be able to plot and plan where my career is going. And uh, I, I was always open with the MACE board that at a point in time I'd like to step out and do other things. And I've now been afforded that opportunity. And uh, I think life's too short to not do it because um, I think if you don't do it at the right time, suddenly that time passes by and you don't get it back. It seems only fair. I asked you about sort of what, when might these resting periods have happened, coasting periods. It seems only fair now I ask you about a, a, a rather pivotal, what what I suspect would have been a rather accelerating moment. And that's 2013, isn't it? When you, uh, you uh, threw an MBO, then you joined the MACE board. Yeah, I did. I think... You're right. It was an absolute pivotal moment. I think, um, you know, I'd never, when I joined Mason in the early days, I'd always thought that I'd come in, do five years, set the business up, move on to the challenge, um, because that's really how my career had evolved up to that point. But I stayed with it, enjoyed it immensely. Every day was a challenge. And then I was offered the opportunity to join the group board, as you say, and become an owner. And that's something that I'm enormously proud of to become a shareholder of such a great business. And I think it's important because you have to be invited to become an owner. And it's a privilege that's offered to very few. And there's no doubt that that made a huge difference to me as well. And it makes a difference psychologically to you. You know, when, when you're an executive uh, in any business and uh, what I would call PAYE executive, you do adopt, I think, a slightly different persona approach a feeling i'm not sure whether i'm using the right words but as an owner an executive and owner in the business it meant a huge amount to me now there's something else in the background throughout throughout all this sort of incredible sort of business growth all this activity all these great big projects that are going on i'm not quite sure what possessed you but you you took on a, a, an additional role didn't you when you became the uh, was it the chairman of build uk Yes, it was. Yeah. I'd been involved with what was the old UK contractors group. I, I sat on their board for a few years. And when the UK CG merged, Build UK was formed. And Sir James Waits and I were both involved with both organisations. And I succeeded James as chair. And it was an interesting time. I mean, uh, it was an opportunity I wanted to do. I wasn't aware of some of the challenges that were coming around at that time, such as the unfortunate demise of Carillion and the Grenfell fire was another big thing going on around that time. But it gave me the opportunity to, one, to chair a board, which was outside of my comfort zone. I was very fortunate that I had a great board of directors led by the effervescent uh, Susanna Nickel, who's the CEO, but also members of the board that were CEOs in other big companies as part of my peer group, who were great to work with. And uh, you know, it also gave us some opportunities to be involved in trying to change certain aspects of the industry, working with government, things like payment, contract terms, those sort of tough issues that we were dealing with at the time. So, yeah, it was enjoyable, quite challenging. But equally, I think, you know, when those opportunities come along to to serve in that role within the industry, I I think it's something that 
you should be pleased to uh, be approached and, and give it your best shot. And this uh, this leads us up quite nicely then, I think, to right bank bang up to date when we start, as I mentioned at the very start of this, the, the news this week was that Mark Castle, COO of, of, of Mace Construction, is stepping down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, we talk about sort of accelerating and resting sort of chapters, don't we? We talk we talk about sort of when people are growing and, and when people are learning the most and when, when they are, are resting. Is there is there anything in that that's led up to this decision? Have you felt that you've you've reached then a point of which you you couldn't you couldn't continue to develop at the same rate? No, I think I think in terms of what's led to the decision, it was a decision that I'd made in principle probably three or four years ago. I'd always felt that two, there's two routes I could have gone. I could have stayed in the executive role at Mason, perhaps worked under 65, doing the same thing, just growing the business. Or I could follow my instincts, which was I wanted to do something different. So my plan was always to step down at 55. I'm a year behind the plan, and that's predominantly driven by the impacts of COVID and the pandemic and working with the MACE board to make sure the business charted its way through that, that territory in the, in the right way. So this is not new news. Most people that know me have known that I've had a desire to step out at this time with a view to pursuing, I think, what's effectively known as a plural career. I think when you, I've been in the role 17 years, so doing doing the job I think is long enough. I think you can, if you're not careful as a leader, you know, you can be there for too long. And I think we've got some wonderful talent in our business that deserve the opportunity to have a go at the role. And as you've seen in the press that Andrew Jackson, my colleague, is taking on that role. But more importantly for me, I, you know, this is not retirement by any stretch. Uh, I'm certainly not going to go and sit on a beach, even if I could. I think, you know, my plan really is health permitting. I'd like to be looking at this as the next stage of my career for the next 10 or 15 years. And I want to sort of do a broad spectrum of things, both inside the industry and outside. And I'm, you know, I'm blessed that that Mace have asked me to stay on as a non-exec director, which I'm looking forward to, to doing a different role, but maintain contact with the business day to day. But also I'm open minded as to what that future holds in terms of doing other things as well, Nick. Okay. If I can ask you one final question, Mark. Um, mm. You've been really open and honest about sort of your, your age. So we, we know you've spent 40 years in the industry. What have you learned? What could we possibly sort of take from that to sort of impart to f- sort of future leaders who might be listening to this? I guess the two key things looking back, I said it earlier that as a leader, However good you think you are as an individual, you are only as good as the people you've got around you. Uh, As I said earlier, employ the best that you possibly can, even if that means you've got to pay more for them, because you will learn from each other. You'll get a better performance and it will make you a better leader. The other thing that I was reflecting on is that not to lose sight of the fact that whatever roles we perform, we are only custodians of the role while we're in post and never get wrapped up in your own self-importance. I'm not huge on ego, which hopefully is going to stand me in good stead as I, uh, as I move into the next stage of my career. The other thing I would say, if you're a leader, make sure you get a damn good PA. 
because Sophie, who's been my PA for the last 10 years, it's her organisational skills that make me look better than I really I am. And um, every week she points me off in the direction of where I'm heading in terms of my commitments. And having a great PA when you're a leader is, is hugely important. It'll make your life a lot easier. And the last thing, the last thing I wanted to sort of perhaps sign off on, Nick, is that you know I'm a I'm a person. There's an old adage about whether you work to live or live to work. I'm very much I work to live, and it's not the other way around. I've been very fortunate to have a close family that have shared the journey with me, ups and downs, more ups and downs, I would say. And certainly without them, none of the last forty years would have been worth it. Uh, well, I think that's a lovely note for us to draw it all to a close, mate. So thank you again for finding the time to um, talk us through this, mate. I think I think it's made a, a, a fascinating sort of take on things and, and there's an awful lot to learn um, from that. So thank you again. You're welcome, mate. Thanks for inviting me. The Urban Land Institute is the oldest and largest network of cross-disciplinary real estate and land use experts in the world with more than 45,000 global members. The ULI's ethos of personal development makes them an ideal collaborator on our podcast, and we encourage our listeners to learn more and become members by signing up at uli.org forward slash join, quoting the promo code ACRE. Thank you for listening.